we go. All right. Well, thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I'll tell you one of the things that I really enjoy when I come here <clears throat> is the worship. I always enjoy it so much. By the way, speaking of worship, my son Caleb said, how to do? He wanted to let you know that he's thinking of you, that he loves you, and that he always misses you. Well, obviously, I'm not Pastor Greg. Uh, he said to get down like this, and then I would be. Is that what you said, Jim? Jim said that. He told me to do that, okay? By the way, I'm rather offended uh, today. Uh, when I came in, he handed me this mic. You know, I'm used to usually having the headset, and he handed the mic, and he said that we had set the microphone so that it was suitable for a normal voice, not a loudmouth like you. Isn't that what you said, Jim? Yeah, you, you, imp you implied that this morning, yeah. But uh, anyway, pray, pray for our Pastor Greg. I'm sure most of you know that he came down with COVID. And uh, so he's dealing with the COVID now as well as continuing to recover. And if you've had COVID, you know it's not a, a fun thing to be experiencing. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to go to the book of Philippians again. We've all watched this last week, and Heather alluded to it a moment ago, uh, as we watched the, and you can stay off that one for a little bit there, you can go back, um, but we watched the horrific crime, or the, I guess you'd say the tragedy, not crime, that took place down in Florida with Hurricane Ian. And what breaks my heart is the heart of that storm where it actually struck was right in Fort Myers, which is where, of course, Charlie came in and just literally leveled Fort Myers in 2004. I have many friends that are down there in Fort Myers. One of my favorite churches is down there in Fort Myers. A uh, pastor that I know very well is down there. And so it's always hard watching those kinds of things take place and really what's going to be taking place afterwards because now not only do they have to recover from the devastation, which it may be one of the worst storms, uh, and the damage may be the largest of any storm that's ever struck America. We don't know that yet. But now not only do they have to deal with the devastation and destruction that they experience, but now they have to deal with the aftermath of such an event, and that's the looting, the thieving, and the scamming that takes place afterwards. If you saw the press conference that Governor DeSantis had, he, he gave warning to those that would take advantage of people that had gone through such an experience like that and then would come in and follow behind and try to scam and loot and thieve those people. It's one of the most tragic things, not only they're getting back to normal, but now they have to deal with these kinds of things as well. I guess if I was to say a list of my top crimes, at the top obviously is murder, but right behind murder is thievery. Is thievery. It's right there with it. If you really think about it, murder is really thievery as well, isn't it? It's stealing a life, isn't it? 
actual thievery is stealing things that belong to others, that they rightfully own and they rightfully possess. And so these people come along and they steal what is not theirs. They don't create anything. They don't earn it. They don't make it. They don't bring it into being. They just simply take what belongs to somebody else and they then say it is theirs. There's just something abhorrent about a thief. Anybody that would come in, and my wife and I, we've been broken two, three times in our homes, and, and we know what it's like to be violated, to have somebody come into our sacred space and take what belonged to us so that we were no longer able to enjoy what we had. And to take away the joy of a safe place and a safe home. We know what it's like to be the victim of thievery or of stealing. Well, this morning I'm here to talk about a, another kind of thievery that's taking place in the church. It's a thievery that's taking place in the church. There are looters, there are thieves. And there are scammers in the church. And take a look around right now. Just look around at everybody in here. Because it could be that person next to you that is the thief. It could be that person that is across the aisle from you that is the thief. Or it could be you. It could be you that is looting Stealing, taking what other people have, and it's been a problem in the church since the very beginning, and it's still a problem today, and Paul highlights it in Philippians. Now, you know about the book of Philippians. I don't need to remind you. You've looked at it. It's one of your, probably your favorite books. As you know, it's a letter, and the primary theme is joy. Paul is the writer setting for Paul as he's sitting in a dark, dank Roman prison cell, chained to a guard, waiting for his final sentencing from the evil emperor Nero, which could be a sentence of death. And he writes this letter, and all throughout this letter, he, he keeps talking about joy. And when we come to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers... And you realize there's two more chapters. This is in preacher speak, right? When a preacher says, and finally, there's a lot of sermon yet to come. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, why in the middle of this letter... And there's a lot that has taken place before we're not going back to, but why in the middle of this letter does Paul say, rejoice in the Lord? What does he admonish them? And really, it's not just an admonishing. It really is a command. It is a command in the Greek language. He commands them to rejoice in the Lord. What was it that set Paul off that he had to say to these Philippian believers, rejoice in the Lord? Well, it was because there were looters, there were scammers, and there were thieves in the church. And what is it that they were stealing? Well, it's one simple word, the joy of the gospel. 
They were stealing the joy of the gospel. And this morning, we're going to look at these joy stealers, these people that I call legalists. Because you see, the joy stealer is legalism. Because Paul is going to write about these guys. There were a group of people, you've heard again about them, because I know your pastor is a tremendous Bible teacher. But these legalists were, of course, the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a group of people that said, it's not enough to believe in Jesus Christ. There is something more that you must do. There's something more that you must add to your salvation if you want to really be saved. And they were stealing the joy of the gospel by their legalism and by works righteousness. By saying to these Philippians, hey, you don't have all there is. There's things that you've got to do. You've got to get under the burden of the law again. You've got to get under the weight of the law again. And you've got to live under the law again if you really want to be right with God. Now, let me let you in on a little secret that the devil doesn't want you to know this morning, if you're a believer. If he can't keep you from being saved, he will keep you from enjoying your salvation. If he can't keep you from believing in the gospel... He will keep you from enjoying the gospel because that's what legalism does. That's what work righteousness does. It steals our joy. It it puts us under bondage and condemnation, puts us under fear and anxiety and false belief and guilt. It makes Christianity, quote-unquote, burdensome. It makes it tedious. It makes it untenable. It makes it unenjoyable because that's what they are all about. And that same legalistic spirit creeps into our churches today. It creeps into each of our own lives in in many different ways. And And it steals our joy. And it's a kind of, to me, a worse crime than even the crime that's taking place in Florida or on the streets of Columbus because it steals what is rightfully ours in Jesus Christ. Paul makes that very clear as he speaks about these people and what he thinks of this legalistic crowd because he talks about, first of all, the bane of legalism. The bane of legalism. He had some very harsh words for these people. You know, if Paul were preaching today, he would not get many invitations to most of our churches today. Because they couldn't handle his straightforward preaching. You know what I'm saying? He he just told it the way it is. They would not like the things that he was saying. Look what he says about these legalists. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Look at how he kind of describes them. First of all, he says, you're dirty. These thieves, they're nothing but a bunch of dirt bags, scumbags. Because you see, the word dogs was the term that the Jews used 
to deride or make fun of the Gentiles because they considered the Gentiles the unclean people. They were ceremonially impure. And Paul turns the table and says, no, the people that are ceremonially impure, the the dogs, the contemptuous people, are not those people. It is those that put people under the bondage of legalism. He says they are deceptive. He calls them evildoers, which is a combination of two words. It means somebody that is bad or evil that deceives or causes other people to be deceived. The problem was that these people weren't enlightening people. They were deceiving people. Does that sound familiar in our culture today? The education system purports to enlighten people when, in essence, they will oftentimes deceive them. And we're talking more in the higher halls of education. But here were these legalists coming along saying, hey, you've got to do all these extra things. And Paul says they are deceivers, but then he says they are deplorable. Long before Hillary Clinton called us a bunch of basket of deplorables, Paul really calls them it because he said these Judaizers mutilate the flesh. Now, what was he addressing? Well, you know, the Jews believed in circumcision. They were told by Moses, who was told by God that the Jews were to be circumcised, and that was a sign of their, their, their faith, so to speak. But Paul says your circumcision is nothing more than a mutilation of the flesh, which would have been unacceptable to the Jew because what he is referring to is if you go back in 1 Kings, you remember when Elijah was on the mountain, they were mutilating themselves to try to get their God to pay attention to them. And he's saying to them, literally, you're no different than those pagan priests that mutilate their flesh in order to try to get God to pay attention to them, to listen to them, or to accept them. You're no different than that when you are engaged in this legalism. And and then he talks about the fact that they are duped because they think that they are really worshiping God when they do that. They think that they are really in a right relationship, the circumcision that it's supposed to be. And Paul says, no, they don't. We worship in the gospel the true living God, and we have a circumcision not of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. So what Paul does for us is he just calls out these joy stealers and says exactly what legalism is. You say, well, Paul, you're awful harsh. What gives you room to say that? Well, he can say it because he had lived it. And that's what he does in verses 4 through 5. He really exposes the bankruptcy of legalism. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul highlights in his life that he 
did everything, had everything that legalism required, but he found it to be bankrupt. He had the purity. He was circumcised on the eighth day like a good Jew. He had the pedigree. He was of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had the practice because he was a Pharisee. I mean, he was the top-tier guy in terms of keeping the law. He had the passion because as to zeal, he was persecuting the church. And he had the perfection because as to the righteousness under the law, he was blameless. In fact, if you would have been walking down the streets, or a mother was walking down the streets, and Paul came down the street, she would look at her little son and say, Son, when you grow up, I want you to be just like Paul. Paul's picture was hanging in the hall of legalism. It was hanging in the hall of Phariseeism. He was the champion of it. He had everything that legalism said you needed to have to be all that God wanted you to be. But there was one thing that he did not have. And it was this. He did not have the joy of salvation. Because, you see, legalism will never bring joy. It will never bring a right relationship with God. And it it is bankrupt. It cannot produce what it says. It is a scammer. And sadly, it still lives in the church today. It tells a person, you screwed up. You'll never be good enough. God will never be pleased with you. You're not doing enough things. You'll never get into heaven. You need to do more to make up for that wrong that you did. You need to pray more. You need to have more faith. You need to have a longer, quiet time. You need to use the King James Version of the Bible. You need to cut your hair. You need to only wear this. You need to only do that. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. You need to do that. And it's a silent killer because it works on the inside of us and it fills us with guilt and it's constantly condemning others. You don't measure up. You aren't wearing the right clothes. You're a smoker. You need to clean up your act before you come to church. You shouldn't wear makeup. You should wear makeup. Your hair is too long. You laugh at that, but I saw that because I was raised in the 60s. When the hippies weren't allowed to come into church because they didn't look right, they didn't dress right, they didn't have the right hairstyle. Friends, that is legalism. And some of us are caught up in that in our own lives because we're living under this constant guilt and this constant pressure that there's more and more that we've got to do. I'm just not quite good enough for God to really love me. I haven't done enough to make up. There's all that guilt that is in our hearts. And when we don't do it, then we feel condemned. So that we never really experience the the joy of the gospel. I heard about a little girl. She was from the city, and I can understand this because I was a city boy. So she had never been out in the country before. So she went out into the country, and she saw her first mule. Never seen one before. Saw her first mule. And she studied that mule, and she looked at that mule, and she 
went up and down that mule, thought about that mule for a while, and finally she spoke and said, well, you must be a Christian because you look just like my granddaddy. Now, I'm not saying she thought he was a you-know-what, but but just looking at his solemn face, the only thing she could relate it to was her granddaddy, who was a Christian. Because that's what joy does, our, our legalism does. It sucks the joy out of us. It sucks the life out of us. And Paul says, don't let them do that. Rejoice in the Lord. Because you see, the gospel is a joy giver not a joy stealer. Because see, everything changed for Paul when he experienced the joy of the gospel. Martin Luther, and if you know much about Martin Luther, Martin Luther was, of course, the reformer that started the Reformation. We're here today because of Martin Luther. But Martin Luther was a legalist. Martin Luther was a man living under the weight of of guilt and condemnation. He would flay himself. He would beat himself. He would lay out in the snow. He, he, he was so weighted down with guilt that, that he would go and confess things. And finally, his, his uh, superior said to him, Martin Luther, quit coming to me until you've done some kind of sin of significance. Because he was always in there, always confessed, because he was always weighted down with guilt until he discovered the joy of the gospel. And this is what he said of the true gospel. He said, the gospel is nothing less than laughter and joy. So why did Paul go through all of his purity, his pedigree, his practice, his passion, and his perfection? Was it to brag? No, it was to say what he's going to say in verse 7. Look at it. But whatever gain I had, whatever I gained under legalism, under works righteousness, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What is the gospel? It's simply this. We're completely forgiven and made right with God because of Christ's righteousness. And when we grab hold of that in our hearts and in our minds, in our spirit, in our soul, we discover that the gospel is a joy giver. And that's what Paul is going to unfold for us in the remaining part of this chapter. He's going to help us understand that the gospel comes in three stages, if I can say it that way. Very careful how I say that, but it comes basically in three stages, each of which bring joy. First of all, there's the joy of justification. There is the joy of justification. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of 
the dead. In other words, Paul says, the very thing that I was looking for for so long, that I was striving after for so long, that I was weighted down under and burdened trying to obtain, I have found in Jesus Christ, I have found in the gospel that I have been made right, absolutely made right with God. Because, you see, justification is not our attaining to a standard so that God receives us. Justification is God's legal act of declaring us righteous in Christ so that you and I have a right standing with God. Justification means that we have been made positionally right with Christ, with God that we are in a right standing with him right now by virtue of our position in Jesus Christ. And when we get hold of that, when we understand that we're not trying to obtain a position, imagine Aaron Judd. Anybody watch baseball? Anybody watch baseball? Okay. You know who Aaron Judd is? This dude is killing it for the New Yankees. Do you think he's... Do you think he's sitting there going, man, i got to go out there and hit another home run. They're going to cut me from this team. i got to go out here and perform because if I don't, they're going to release me from this team. No, he is anchored in his position. He knows who he is, and that gives him confidence to be who he is. My friends, Satan doesn't want you to understand who you are in Jesus Christ, and I've talked about this with you many times before. But I want you to understand that you have been made right with God. And when you understand that, it brings joy. Because we experience, first of all, the joy of a true relationship with Christ. Because that's what he talks about in verse 8. He says, I give it all away to have the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Because you see, legalism is all about what a person does. You hear what I'm going to say? Legalism is all about what a person does. The gospel is all about the person you know. Did you hear what I said? Legalism is all about what you do. The gospel is all about who you know. Can I get an amen on that? That ought to bring joy to your heart because, you see, it's not about the weight, the burden, the performance. It's about the fact that you know him, that you have a true relationship with Jesus Christ right now. And it is rock solid, it is secure, it is stable, it is yours right now. There's nothing more, listen to me, there's nothing more you can do to get God to love you than he already does. Hello? Is that all you got? There's nothing more that you can do to make God love you than he loves you right now in Jesus Christ. Paul was wanting that, but he couldn't ever find it, but now he has. But second of all, we experience the joy of true righteousness. You see, legalism 
is about an achieved righteousness. It's about what I've accomplished, what I have done. The gospel is about imputed righteousness, that the righteousness of Christ has been deposited to your account so that God sees you completely righteous in Jesus Christ. That blows my mind that right now God sees me totally righteous. That is one of those moments, you know what I'm saying? But then we experience the joy of true resurrection. You see, legalism always brings death. The gospel always brings life. Because Paul says, I've given it all away because I am now experiencing the resurrection. I am the anticipation of the resurrection. I've already been raised from spiritual death. And one day, and we'll talk about it later, we're going to experience a physical resurrection. You see, we have to realize what we have already in Jesus Christ this very moment. And we have to always be on guard because it is so easy for us to slip back into legalism. We've all done it. I was, I was a legalist about my quiet time. Man, if I didn't spend an hour in prayer and all that stuff, I felt like I was horrible. I didn't have a good day. You know, and I would say that's because I'm not getting right with God. And I could put it in nice spiritual terms, but the reality was it was my works righteousness. You're going to say I'm strange. I had to quit having a quiet time for a while so that I did it for the right reason. So there's the joy of justification. Martin Luther, I alluded to earlier, said this. The article of justification is fragile. Not in itself, of course, but in us. I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. You see, the one thing the devil doesn't want you to do is to enjoy the gospel. He wants to take away the joy. So there's the joy of justification, but then there's, second of all, the joy of sanctification or progressive righteousness. Look what he goes on to say. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul begins by saying, not that I have already obtained. Now, if, if Paul came to our church, we would say, that is a spiritual giant. If anybody is there, it's Paul. And Paul says, I'm not there. Not that I have already obtained it. In fact, he uses the word press on twice, which means in the Greek language to pursue or to run after. It's not a casual endeavor. It's not just simply kind of lollygogging along. It's not floating down the lazy river. He says, I am actively pursuing. And what is he pursuing? He is pursuing his sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is God's progressive work in our lives to make us more and more 
free from sin and more and more like Jesus Christ. We have been made positionally right with Christ, but we need to be progressively made right in our practice. We've talked about this before. Sanctification is where we are progressively made right with God in our practice. And Paul had a single-minded focus because, you see, when we are walking and we are living in the joy of our sanctification, it means a couple things. One, we experience the, the joy of knowing Christ more and more. You can go to the next slide there. We, we experience the joy of knowing Christ more and more. You see, Paul is saying, look, you know, when I got saved, that's not all there is. Hallelujah. There's more. Because I get to know Christ more and more and more. I've known the Lord now 45 years. Anybody known him longer than me? I'm sure there are some. Put those hands up. Let's see him there. Anybody known him more than 40? There you go. Do you think you know all there is to know of him? Absolutely not. And Paul says, I never want to stop getting to know Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. It's not legalism. It's saying, I want to know him more and more. And Paul says, the reason why is because I myself have been made, look what he says, because Jesus Christ has made me his what? Own. F.B. Meyer, a great British preacher, titled this verse, Apprehended to Apprehend. Let me put that in words for us today. We have been apprehended by Christ so that we may apprehend Christ. Is there that kind of passion? And when you have that, it brings joy. But second of all, we experience the joy of growing in Christ more and more. You probably never heard this, but in the Christian faith, there is a divine discontentment that we all need to have. A divine discontentment. What is that divine discontentment? Is that we have not arrived, we have not fully experienced everything that Jesus Christ has for us. We haven't experienced everything that Jesus Christ wants to do in us. We are progressively growing. It's the guy that that continues to say there is more. I'm sure Aaron Judd is, you know, he could sit back and say, man, I've done this. I've hit 61. Man, I'm happy with it. No, he's going to continue to strive for more because he knows there's more. And in the Christian, we're not striving because we're under the weight of guilt. We're We're striving because we want it. You understand the difference? Because we experience joy when we get to know Christ more and more. You see, sanctification is an essential part of Christianity, but it is essentially missing part of many Christians' lives. People love salvation, but they cringe at sanctification. Wilbur Reese wrote a poem that he was describing many in the church. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. 
I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. How much of God do you want? Have you lost the joy of your sanctification where there's no longer the joy of knowing him and, and, and growing in him and experiencing all that he has? Don't let the devil steal that from you. But then finally, third of all, there's the joy of glorification. Now, what is glorification? Well, it's perfect righteousness. Glorification is God's perfect work where believers, now this is what I'm going to say, if I don't get an amen out of this, I'm going home. But glorification is God's perfect work in believers where they are made perfectly free from sin. Perfectly free. Glorification means we are perfectly made right with God in our new heavenly bodies. It means that our position and our practices are aligned. And, and when we grasp that, it changes our life. We experience the joy of a heavenly focus. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about the legalists. How would you like to have somebody say that? You're really acting like an enemy. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds that are set on earthly things. You see, legalism is all about what I'm doing, so it's all about what I'm living in this moment. But when we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we have a different focus because he says, but our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, the legalism focuses on the now. Glorification focuses on what's to come. Hallelujah. I am so glad this is not all there is. Amen? I am so glad that, that this is not all there is. I, I can't imagine living a life of despair like the atheist lives, that this is all there is in their minds. Now, they're going to find out later on that there is more, and it ain't going to be a good place to find it out. But the, but the reality of it is, my friends, that when we are focused on the gospel, we have a future focus. We're focused on heaven. I've said this before, the great songs that the slaves sang in the, the Civil War period there, that horrible period in our history. Think about the songs. They didn't talk about my life's going to be better tomorrow. My life's going to be great today. I'm feeling great. God's going to make me feel happy today. Now, what did they sing about? They sang about heaven. They sang about heaven. They knew this wasn't where they were going to get their reward. They knew this wasn't where they were going to experience joy. Heaven was where their joy ultimately lay. They had a heavenly focus. But then we experience the joy of a heavenly anticipation. Look what he goes on to say, verse 21. 
who will, well, I'll start in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to him. What is Paul saying? We have a heavenly anticipation that we're going to receive that new resurrection body that is going to be like Jesus Christ, and we are going to be entirely, completely set free from sin. And he tells us when that's going to happen. He says, we are awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. Are you awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ? Did you wake up this morning, and I know it's hard to do. I don't wake up every morning going, man, Jesus may come. Some days I just wake up and go, oh, dear God, I need to go back to bed. (laughs) Let's be honest. But, But I like to think during the course of the day, sometime I'm aware that at any moment Jesus Christ may come. And we live with that anticipation because we know that when he comes, when the trumpet sounds, as we've talked about before, we're going to receive that new resurrection body that will be fit from heaven, free from sin, conformed to Jesus Christ. And when is that going to happen? We'll look over at 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be closing out here. Look over at 1 Corinthians 15. Love this verse. Love these verses. Because to me, this is the pinnacle of it all. He says, I tell you this, brothers, I'm going to preach, he says. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed. We shall not sleep. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Preach it, brother. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. And I wish we had time to really talk about what a twinkling of an eye is so fast. Not talking about the blinking, but literally the time it takes light to travel from the moment it touches your eye till it gets back to the retina. I can't spend the time describing that for you, but it is phenomenal. He says, that quick, it is going to happen, and we are going to be changed. Does that bring you joy? Does that bring you joy? Because you see, we have this great gospel, and legalism wants to take all that away from us. So what have we learned about the joy of the gospel? We can rejoice because we have been justified, which means we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We can rejoice because we have been sanctified, progressive righteousness, which means we are being saved from the power of sin, 
And we can rejoice because we will be glorified and we will be forever saved, listen to this, from the presence of sin. Presence of sin. Why in God's name would anybody want to go back to the old way? So I'm speaking to some here this morning. And I know there are because I was raised in the Baptist church. And we like to say we're people of grace, but I know what we do. And some of you have been under that weight and under that condemnation, that guilt. And and for the life of you, you cannot reconcile that God could really love you. That God could really have forgiven you. That God could really want you. That God would continue to really want to work with you and change you. And that God really wants you to be with him in heaven. And I know some of you are battling with that because I battle with it almost daily. Because that joy stealer, he's right there in our ear. But you see, ultimately behind legalism is the devil. It's always been there. Always. Hey, Eve. You really want to be like God. You need to be able to do the things that God can do. So I want to speak to you this morning. If you're living under the bondage, if you've lost the joy of your salvation, the joy of your sanctification, the joy of your glorification, throw off those chains. Come back and experience the joy of the gospel. Lord, I thank you this morning for reminding us of what we have. We understand this morning that we're in a a war. That there are thieves and looters, scammers that want to steal what is rightfully ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be vigilant and on task to experience all the joy that we have. Lord, don't let us lose that joy. Father, this morning I pray for that person that perhaps this week has been a week of great defeat and failure. And they know that they have walked in disobedience. They know that they have grieved your spirit and the spirit of legalism whispers in their ear. You've messed up now. God's angry with you. God doesn't love you anymore. You need to feel worse and worse. You got a lot to do to make it up to God. 
feel far away from God. I invite you this morning to come back into the joy of the gospel. To get honest with God, to admit that sin, and to receive His forgiveness. Not earn it, receive it. Not gain it, not get it. But experience it. I also want to speak to that person that's maybe watching on Facebook or in this room. You've never experienced the gospel. You're still trying to achieve salvation in your own power. There's more you've got to do. You've got to get your act cleaned up before you can be saved. You need to get your life together. There's things you need to change. You can't come to church. You're just a filthy sinner. You don't feel worthy to walk in these doors. All that's happening is the joy stealer is trying to keep you away from the very thing that you need the most, the joy of the gospel. And I invite you this morning, right where you are, in your home, sitting on your couch, or sitting in this room, to say, Lord Jesus, I can't earn it. I can't achieve it. I've sinned. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. I believe in him as my Lord and Savior. I trust and I receive him into my heart and all the joy that he brings of salvation, sanctification, glorification. Someone else needs a church home. Maybe this is where God is speaking to you. As you grow in your sanctification, this is the place that he wants you to come where you sit under great Bible teaching like Pastor Greg and great Sunday school teachers and people that love the Lord. God is speaking to you here. Whatever your decision is, this time of invitation as we close out, sing a song is for you. You can come and use the altar. I'll be standing at the front if you should need to talk with anybody. Lord, thank you now for this season. Thank you for your Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as well.